0: Well, you can have a seat. And good morning, once again. My name is Jacob Smith, and I am the teaching pastor for our college ministry here at Anderson. And, man, I just want to welcome you to Grace. Uh, we are here at the end of a series, a three week series, studying the first three chapters of the book of Romans. It's a letter written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome a couple thousand years ago. And when he wrote this letter, he was writing to a people that he did not know. He had never been there, he had not established that church, uh, he had not visited that church. And so what he was doing is he was going out of his way to just un- unpack basically all the essentials of our faith, all the essentials of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so he starts off talking about what holds us back from God, what holds us back from Jesus Christ. And he talks about the shame and the guilt and the fear and the frustration that can dominate our lives. And yet, as we've looked at this the last couple of weeks, what we're recognizing is that we, as Jesus followers, are actually free to live lives that are unashamed. Unashamed of the power of the gospel That has transformed who we are, that has transformed where we've been, where we are, and where we're headed. And so this morning, as we wrap this up in Romans chapter three, I mean, my hope is that we get a, a vision for the truth that even though we all carry shame, right? Even though we all have past mistakes and regrets and failure, right, we look to yesterday and we say, Oh Alabama, the shame you have brought, right? Like, or the, oh, you New York Yankees my beloved Astros are in the shame. And that's, that's, that's going to happen, right? Like we're just going to have failure in our lives. But that past failure that could create present struggle and then carry into future anxiety, those things are done away with by Jesus Christ in our lives. I mean, you know, sports, there's still a little bit of shame. But in our lives, personally, we're in the clear. Why? Because Jesus changed everything absolutely everything. So my hope is that this is something that has resonated with you. I hope that this is a topic that has had a a lot of power in your life. I hope that you've been learning outside of even just Sundays about what it means to live a life that's unashamed of the gospel. That's why we put together a reading plan. If you haven't subscribed to it, I would encourage you. It might be a helpful resource. If you use a Bible app, it's probably the YouVersion one. It's probably that one that's on your phone. Uh, It's what I use personally to, to read through scripture. It's reminds me every morning uh, to, of what passage that I'm in. And we have a reading plan. If you search up Grace College or if you search Unashamed, it essentially brings you to a lot of the corresponding scriptures, the, the corresponding Word of God that, that relates to this idea of living lives unashamed of the gospel, lives that are transformed by the overwhelming power of Jesus Christ. Right? And so my hope is that this morning, as we wrap up this first short little series in Romans, That we would better understand what Paul is communicating in Romans chapter 3. Which is that every single one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. We live only by faith in the one who is actually faithful. Every single one of us are wholly dependent. I love that Tyler brought up that illustration that Jesus used of a child. It's, It's that humility. It's that incredible dependency that children are forced to exhibit. That Christ says, I want you to choose that in your life because that's what defines us. We are a people who live by faith in the one who is faithful, which is really important because in and of ourselves on our own, right? We are we are without hope. <laughs> We're hopeless. We're hopeless. I, I await the day that my two sons live that life. I will absolutely get that trash can so they can do that. I want them to walk that path. Uh, but the reality is that we are hopeless, right? We want to pick ourselves up and prove ourselves right, right? We want, At the end of the day, we want to make sure that me and people respect us for who we are. We want to honestly really earn our favor in the Lord's eyes, in the sight of the world. That's what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, that there are many ways that we try to prove ourselves to others and ourselves and our God. But the reality is that at the end of the day, we are still imperfect people in a world that is created by a perfect God. And the deepest longings of our souls is to find peace and purpose. And the Word of God is clear that that is only found in trusting Jesus Christ, by putting our faith in the one who is and will always be faithful. Because on our own, we're just going to walk back into that trash can lid time and time and time again. So this morning, we're in Romans chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 20 through 28. And if you turn there, what you're going to see, or what you'll see on the screen in a minute, is that uh, there are three key theological concepts that we're going to address that Paul brings out related to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Specifically, he's going to talk about how the faithfulness of Christ secures redemption, justification, and propitiation. Right? Which are words that we don't generally throw around. Right? Like you didn't like get in the car this morning and be like, oh yeah, I can't wait to propitiate. Right? Like that's, you'd be using it incorrectly. But also... That's not how we speak. And so another way I want you to think about it is, you know, these are theological terms uh, that are essentially just addressing the faithfulness of Christ and his effect upon sin, his effect upon mankind, and his effect upon God. And so as we walk through these verses, we're going to see the extent of what Christ has accomplished. That it's not just forgiving us of our sins. it's, It's actually, there's a lot more contained in what he's done. All right, so he starts in verse 20, uh, talking about the effect of Christ's faithfulness on sin itself. He says in verse 20, "...that no one is declared righteous before him," meaning God, "...by the works of the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin." Right? So this is something we talked about last week. It's the idea that ultimately we in and of ourselves cannot prove ourselves before God, not even following his law, right? He gave his people a law. And we think of maybe the Ten Commandments, and that's part of the law. But the reality is that the the Israelites, they broke it down into 613 different commandments from God. Things that they were supposed to do, things that they were supposed to not do. And when you try to follow all of those things, you try to check check all 613 boxes, the reality is that but you simply cannot do it, right? Paul's saying no one has been able to perfectly follow this law. Even if you can try to create an external Im- image of perfection, that's what Jesus torpedoed in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you know what, maybe you didn't murder someone, but you thought hatefully about them, and that's, that's sin, that's wrong. Maybe you didn't have an affair, but you know what? You thought lustfully about that person and that's, that's still sin, right? Your heart is still in the wrong place. And so every single one of us, we have to admit, man, you know what? The law, all it has done is it has shown me more and more of how my best is not enough. How my best efforts is simply never going to be enough when it comes to meeting the standard that God has laid out. And last week we talked about, I mean, maybe we try to play that comparison game. And we think, well, yeah, maybe I'm not, you know, perfect, but I'm better than Steve, Ugh! right? At least I put my bowls in the dishwasher, right? We play that game. But the reality is that it doesn't doesn't matter. I I love uh, one uh, old author and theologian put it this way. Uh, Hanley Mool said that the harlot, the liar, the murderer, they are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you at the crest of the Alps, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. It says we all fall short of the glory of God. That's, That's what we're about to read actually here in a minute that every single one of us are, are, are sinners, we're all broken. And even though we try to play a game of saying like, well, maybe I'm higher than them, that it's, it's a lost cause. You still fail to meet the standard of perfection that Jesus had to come and shake up. Right? That's why Paul is intentional in pointing out in verse 21 uh, that now apart from the law, the righteousness of God which is attested by the law and the prophets. It's been disclosed, right? So he says, so the law and the ancient writings, the prophets, the scripture, he says, it's talked about the righteousness of God. It has been attested by uh, these these writings. And that's, that's good. He says, we've learned a lot about the perfection of God, the righteousness, the rightness of God. But he says, there's something else now. We have another source to look to. Verse 22, he says, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does every single one of us mean we, we fail to meet perfection, but there was one who came and lived and died and rose who shows us, and that's Jesus Christ. What's funny is that maybe if you're reading this in your Bible, there's, there's a little bit of a debate in the scholarly realm on the translation of that faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Some scholars would say, well, it, you know the preposition's a little tricky and so they'd say maybe it's actually uh, that of is an in. And that it's actually the, the faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And, and that's fair. Um, I'm more convinced by other scholars who would argue, no, it's Paul is speaking about in the context, of, he's talking about the context of following the law. And so it would make more sense that it's not, he's not speaking about our faith in Christ, but it's actually the faithfulness of Christ. And so that all of us who believe in that faithfulness, suddenly we see, we can understand the perfection, the righteousness of God in a new way, because Jesus Christ followed all of it perfectly. And so because of his example, because of the life that he lived, now suddenly, for those who believe, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All of a sudden, man, there is an incredible result for those who believe in Jesus Christ, and it's namely redemption. Redemption. Now, when we talk about redeeming, when you see the biblical term, the Greek idea of redemption, uh, it means to be delivered out of something, right? So uh, you would say, I've been delivered, I've been redeemed out of this relationship. I was delivered out of that stinky dorm room. I was delivered out of whatever, you know, like you could name these things. but, But more specifically, this Greek term for redemption is talking about deliverance that required an incredibly high price. Generally, it's used in the context of a price that the, the victim could never afford on their own. That they needed, they absolutely needed someone else to step in and bring the payment that they required to be delivered out of whatever tough situation they were in. They were redeemed by an outside intervention, right? Because it costs so much. You know, when I was growing up, I actually grew up here in town. I'm a townie. I'm from College Station, And we used to have a place called Gaddy Town. And Gaddy Town was a miraculous wonderland where you could eat Mr. Gaddy's pizza and you could play all these different arcade games. And now it's a shoe store. Um, I still go in there and try to play and they they don't like it. But they... They had this incredible space, and the, the, my favorite thing about Guy Town, or if you know, go to a place like Chuck E. Cheese or something like that, it's the same deal. And they have a prize counter, right? There's a table where you can go to, or a counter you can go to, where some like, bored college student is like standing there like, waiting for you to bring their tickets. And then they tell you what you can buy with those tickets, right? So you would approach this moment, and you would look at just this wall of glory, right? this wall of blessing. And you said, come now, thou fount of many blessings. Let me find out what I can buy with all my tickets, right? I would try. I would gamble away all of my parents' money. And I would try to get as many tickets as I could. And I would take it to that counter. and I've got it all masked up. And I'm excited, right? Because I'm looking at the wall, and I'm like, dude, they've got, like, a Nintendo 64. They've got, like, you know, a life-size, I don't know, Star Stormtrooper. Like, they've got all these wild things. And so I'd hand them my big old pile of tickets. They'd feed it through the machine and they'd be like okay you have 180 tickets. And I'm like wow that's amazing right? That's like 100 times my age right? Like cuz I didn't understand math I was you know 8. And so I thought like wow this is amazing like I must be able to afford anything in the world like just give me the store I guess like just wrap it all up and I'll take it home. Uh, and little did I realize, right? Well, I remember the very first time that I realized when I walked up to the counter and I thought I was, I was so wealthy cause I had like over a hundred tickets and I was like, well, how much is the Nintendo 64? And they're like, that is 50,000 tickets. I was like, that's an unreasonable cost, right? <laughs> that, let me talk to your manager. Like mom, right? And I try to get, I try to figure out what am I going to do? And I was like, so, well, how many more do I need? And they're like, well, you need, you know, 49,000 800 and something tickets. 820 tickets. I was like, that's, that's unreasonable. And they're like, I'm sorry. And that's when I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> that's when I realized. We live in a fallen world. Uh, at the tender age of eight. That really the only way you could ever hope to purchase something like that, one of my friends actually, his brother worked at Guy Town and they like cheated the system and he snuck them tickets and then he bought one, a Nintendo 64. And I was like, okay, I guess that's how you get ahead in this world, right? Fraud, white collar crime. (laughs) Hope it's worth it. Because I realized something and something that maybe we realize when we look at scripture is that Jesus has actually done something that we never could possibly do on our own. We cannot meet the standard of God. We cannot reach perfection. And so the price that was paid to deliver us out of that, the redemption that took place was through the death of the son of God. That's how great a price it took to deliver the world from its sin. Man, that is unbelievable. Astronomically high. But the beauty of that is that we are now, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you are saying, yes, I, I want to receive the forgiveness of God, I want to walk in the new life that he provides by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And The beauty is that we are now delivered and we can confess our sins and our God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise that we can grab a hold of that Jesus Christ came, lived, died and rose so that we can be we can know for certain that we're forgiven of our sins. And we see this in scripture over and over again this this call to repentance, this call to to ask confession and asking for forgiveness. And it's not for our or it's not because God's waiting to forgive until we ask, right? Like Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin, it's, it's done. If you've trusted in him, then your past, present, and future sins, they're, they're paid for. But this confession is something for us. It puts our heart in the right place. It's where I, I try to start all of my days, is in confession. When I open the word of God, I say, God, I want you to convict me and show me where am I rejecting your truth? God, where am I running after my own designs, my own goals, my own aspirations? Where am I failing to live the standard that you've set. And when we confess that failure, we know that God has forgiven it. And so this morning, I actually wanted us to do something a little bit different. Because I know a lot of us, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us have trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And so I would love for us to take a moment in community and simply confess. To confess to our God. To take just a minute to do that. So, you're going to turn to your neighbor and you're going to. T- no, I no, don't no, really. How uh, about you? It'll be personal. Some of you were ready, though. Some of you were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> It's going to be between us and the Lord. But we're going to take a moment. And, you know, a lot of times we, we lower our heads, we close our eyes, and that's just to help us focus, right? It's not a mystical position or posture, but it, it helps us focus our thoughts and our attention. And so if you would join me for just the next thirty seconds, we're gonna confess, Lord. We're gonna say, think of God, I I said these things, Lord, I had this attitude, Lord, I've done these things recently, and and God, I just I want to confess that I was in the wrong, and Lord, I wanna ask you for the forgiveness that I know you've already promised, that you've already secured through Jesus Christ. If you would let's let's come before the Lord in confession. God, we thank you that you have secured for us redemption. God, deliverance from the power, the presence, and the penalty of sin. Lord, we just, we ask that we would remember what Christ has done, that it would transform what we do. God, that we would walk in the freedom that is brought by his sacrifice. Lord, we pray these things. We give thanks in your will. Amen. Well, what's beautiful about the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. The, the opportunity we have to confess our sin, to be forgiven, something that I hope you build into your regular regimen, your daily routine, is that that redemption from sin then brings justification for all of Humanity, for those who believe, right? This is what Paul explains in verse 24. He says, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, right? We just read that. But he's using a term right here, justified, and it's a legal courtroom term. And it's specifically talking about being having right standing before a judge, right? To be declared righteous. He explains it more in verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? Is it, it's excluded, right? By what principle? Of works? No, but by the principle of faith. He says, this isn't something you've done. You can't boast about this. But instead, it's because of the trust you've put, the faith you've put in Jesus Christ. For we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. It's the same term, just spelled out a little bit differently. Justified is the same thing as you're declared righteous. And it doesn't mean that you've been made righteous, right? It's not this, you know, that you're ethically perfect, because that's not true. Even as a believer, even as a Jesus follower, you still make mistakes. I'm still going to err, and I'm still going to sin daily, regularly. And it's not the sense of being treated as righteous, even though everyone knows you're not. Right? It's not this idea of like sweeping it under the rug, but it is, in fact, you're being declared righteous, meaning that you are acquitted of all charges against you. And That means that in a judge's eyes, right when he sees you, he says, you've measured up to my standard of right, therefore you receive a favorable verdict. It's something that we shoot for in a lot of areas of life. We want to be people who are justified in a lot of different contexts. In your class, you want to be a successful student, right? You want to be an A student. And so what you do is you look at the grading rubric, you look at the sheet, you look at the standards set by your prof, and you say, okay, I've got to, you know, get this amount of work done, I've got to be here this amount of days, I I need to score, you know, 90% or higher on my homework and quizzes and tests, that's how I measure up to an A, that's how I meet that standard. And if you do that, at the end of the semester, the, the professor will look upon you from his podium or tower, whatever. I don't know about your props. Mine were in giant ivory towers. And they would look down at us from the ruling council of the history department. They would say, you have been judged. A. And you're like, oh, praise the Lord. Right? Like, That's, I made it. Right? You try to get that, you try to reach that standard. Uh, sometimes you don't make it, right? Sometimes you're like, B, C, be gone. And you're just I don't know, but it happens. And we reach these certain standards and we want to be declared right in their eyes in that class. And so God has given us a standard of perfection, right? So we know that He's justified us as righteous. He's declared us righteous. And yet, when we look at His standard, we know that that doesn't make sense, right? The standard that He set, we talked about it last week, talked about it two weeks ago, it's perfection. So for God to justify us means that He's declaring us righteous when we are not. And that creates a tension, right? Because if you watched a murderer, a confirmed murderer, walk into a courtroom and the judge looks at him and says, you know what? I'm just going to declare you righteous. I'm going to declare you innocent. I'm going to quit all charges against you. That's not good, right? That is incredibly unjust. So how can a God justify sinners without compromising his own righteousness? How could he not be a corrupt judge? who's just turning the other way from legitimate issues, legitimate sin? How can he justify sinners? Because at the end of the day, nobody's nerfed. We've all committed sin. We've all fallen and fallen short of the glory of God. So how do we reconcile? How do we absolve that tension? See, this is why Paul is very intentional. This is why he has to explain this third key, kind of final concept about the faithfulness of Christ and its effect upon our God. Why it's not just that he's provided redemption from sin and justification for mankind, but it's also propitiation before God. He says this in verse 25. That God publicly displayed him, meaning Jesus, at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. And this was to demonstrate... His righteousness, because God and his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. Paul says, think back to the mercy seat. This was an object that the people of Israel, that the Jews knew well. It was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, a, basically a big box that God had told his people to make that created this symbolic throne for the Lord. And they put special items inside of it. They made it of very special wood covered in very special gold. And it was to essentially help Israel remember who God is and remember what is required of them to still be a part of his people. Because every single year on the Day of Atonement the high priest, right? So the priest of priests would enter a room called the Holy of Holies, which was at the very center of their place of worship, which was considered the very center of their nation. And he would go in this one day a year and he would perform a sacrifice on the mercy seat, on the lid, on the throne of God. And he would spill the blood of an innocent lamb. And he did it as an act of propitiation. He did it because when God saw that blood, when he saw that death, what it was, was it was a way to satisfy his wrath. That's what propitiation is. It's satisfying or appeasing another person. So Jesus Christ came, lived, died, rose, and served as a propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God. Now again, this isn't language that we generally use. Um, But we do actually have a symbol similar to the mercy seat that we practice as Jesus followers to this day. And it's called communion or the Lord's Supper. And so we're actually going to take it this morning. And we have a number of volunteers who are going to make their way to the back right now that are going to start getting it ready for us. Uh, And the reason we take communion is because we are... In Paul's words, in 1 Corinthians 11, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until the day he returns. Meaning, when we take communion, when we share this little meal together, and it looks different, right? Maybe some of us group in churches that took communion in different ways. Um, even just here at Grace College, we'll, we'll do it in different formats. Sometimes we like go, stand up and go to different stations around the room and have bread and juice, and sometimes we, we sit, like today, and you'll, we'll pass it in little plates, and you'll hold on to a little cup, you'll hold on to a little cracker. Don't need it yet. I'll explain it in a little bit, but We hold on to these things, and we do this as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, because we want to remember what he's accomplished on our behalf. And remember that ultimately, he actually served as a propitiation, that he satisfied the wrath of God. A lot of times as believers, we talk about Jesus Christ saving us from our sins, and that's a little bit theologically murky. He saves us from the power of sin. That's true. He saves us from the presence of sin in our lives. It doesn't have to exist. We have a new master. We have a new Lord. And he saves us from the penalty of sin, specifically God's wrath. So really, when Jesus Christ saves us, when he acts as our propitiation, he's saving us from the wrath of God. And this is what allows God to be just, a righteous judge. This is what Paul explains in verse 26. He says, because of this propitiation, this was to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. Paul's saying, yes, God is perfectly just. Therefore, sin must be punished. But he's also perfectly loving. So therefore, he wanted to send his son, Jesus Christ, to take the hit or to satisfy his wrath to take the punishment, to pay the penalty that we deserve because it was a very high penalty, right? Ultimately, we could never have done it on our own. God knew that. He knew we would never be able to live up to that standard. He knew that we would never find the perfect little goat that would really ever take away our sin because he says that the cost is actually much, much too high. The cost is something that you'll never afford. Because sin at its very core is offending the God of the universe. And when you offend someone, when you act against someone, right, the offense itself is a bigger deal depending on who it is that you've offended. Right? So if we're like in the middle right now and we're like passing on these plates and someone just decides, you know what? I'm tired of the Lord's Supper. I'm fed up with this whole thing. And someone just stands up from the front row and walks up here and like punches me in the stomach that'd be, like, awkward, right? Like, that'd be hopefully uncomfortable for more people than just me. Like, there would probably be someone, some of you, maybe would be concerned. You'd be like, hey, well, what's going on? Right? Maybe, like, one guy would come up here, one core guy would come up and defend me, so thank you. Uh, but if that happened, oh, at the end of the day, uh, everyone was a little uncomfortable, and it's probably great makes a weird conversation afterwards. Like, that's that's probably about it. That's the extent of it. Someone just came up and hit me or tackled me or whatever. Um, Alternatively, if if the Queen of England was walking down the sidewalk and one of you decided to just run out there and tackle her or punch the Queen of the England in the stomach, uh, first of all, how dare you? <laughs> Second of all, that's probably illegal, right? I would assume. Or, you know, I, that maybe that's part of cricket. Or I don't know. I don't know how it works. But we're, we're colonists, after all. We, I don't know what our allegiance looks like. But if you... Attack someone that's in a really high position, right? Like that's that's going to create a lot more problems for you. We've offended the God of the universe, the Creator of all things, the perfectly righteous Judge, and so in light of that, man, the the consequence is incredibly high. That's why Paul says in Romans six that the wages of sin, it's it's death. We deserve to be separated from him for all of eternity. God is perfectly just, he has to punish sin, but he's perfectly loving. So he wanted to send his son to act as our substitute, to serve as our propitiation. The faithfulness of sin saves us, or sorry, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath of God demanded by our mistakes. That's why the gospel is so different from any other solution to sin because it satisfies God's justice and his mercy all at the exact same time. And that's why we live today, right? We live by faith in the one who is faithful. And this is true of God's people across all time. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that there was never a moment in Israel's history where the blood of a goat or an ox took away their sin, Even that moment where the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and brought the blood of that lamb to the mercy seat, that blood itself, that animal blood, did not have some sort of mystical power that allowed God to forgive the sins of Israel. In fact, what we now know is that God was simply holding off on his judgment, that he was being patient with his people. And it wasn't the blood itself, but it was the faith that motivated that action. It was the faith behind that sacrifice that God saw And honored by withholding his wrath until the right moment, which was when Jesus took the cross. And when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, all of God's wrath was brought against him. That's why the Old Testament believers are in the presence of God, enjoying eternal glory. Not because of the death of a lamb or a goat or an ox, but because of the death of Christ. Because that was the moment when God took all past, present, and future sin and brought his wrath against his own son. It satisfied his wrath, but also served his mercy and his love. And that's what we honor through communion. That's what we honor through the Lord's Supper. So thank you for remembering that I needed a thing. Uh, that's why we have these little elements. And again, that. These elements themselves are not mystical are not salvific. This is not something that will earn your place in the family of God or, or, or force him to love you a little bit more. Um, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians, this is simply an opportunity for us to remember, reflect upon, honor, and rejoice in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So when Jesus talked to his disciples right before the night before he was crucified he's sitting down with his disciples and they're sharing a meal and it tells us that after supper he took bread and he broke it and he told his followers, he says this is it's like it's like my body so it's a symbol of my body which is being broken for you so so eat it in remembrance of me so if you would first corinthians 11 also uh recaps, telling us that after supper he took the cup and he showed it to his disciples and he says, hey, this is like my blood, which is being poured out for you. Sacrifice on your behalf, a propitiation, satisfy the wrath that you deserve. So so drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul explains that every time we eat this bread, every time we take that cup, what we do is we're proclaiming the Lord's death, until the day he returns. We're proclaiming the truth that we live by faith in the one who is faithful. We proclaim the truth that our lives are designed to help people find and follow Jesus Christ. Because if we really are adopting this gospel for ourselves, right? Some of us are in a moment right now where we're having to still wrestle with what do we believe about Jesus Christ. Some of us are in that spot. And my encouragement to you is, man, let's let's talk after this service. I mean, talk with the friend that brought you. And I would love to have a conversation about what it looks like to really trust that Jesus came for your sake. Others of us... We're, we're saying, God, I, I believe, I, I, I've trusted, I trusted last semester or two years ago or 10 years ago, but God, I, I still struggle to live a life that really is reflective of who you are and what you've done. God, I struggle to take this story with me everywhere I go. And my encouragement for you is really simple, that you would see yourself as a witness, that you would see yourself as a person who is meant to not just know God, but help others know him as well. That's why we have a resource that we've made a while back that I just I don't talk about enough, um, which is our Discipleship Guide. Uh, we have a handy-dandy little link if you want to write it down and take a picture. And, and this is essentially um, one opportunity to make disciples. Because there's a great commission that tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them what we've been taught, helping them obey what we're called to obey, and and this is a idea that it, a lot of us wrestle with. I've heard the question: the reason we put together this, this disciple guide is because, man, I just heard the question over and over again: "Man, what is discipleship? How do I even disciple people?" Well, we have a six week content that you can walk through with a couple friends. No training required. No no prior experience required. You just you walk through this content, and what it does is it brings you. The Word of God, and it teaches you, man, what does it mean to really be a follower of Christ? And then how do you help others find and follow Him as well? How do you multiply your life through others? That's what we cover in six weeks. It's not the way to make disciples, it is a way. It's a way that I think is really helpful for this specific context. For others of us, we're saying, you know, I feel like I'm reaching the people that God has put right here in front of me, um, but I'm feeling called to another place. Or maybe we're saying, you know what, I, I'm open. I, I'm not sure what God has for me next, and that's why we have an event called Revive. It's why we've been working for months uh, in partnership with about 10 churches here in town uh, to, to hear from the Word of God, we're, we're, David Platt is coming in to speak on uh, God's heart for the nations. It's something that uh, David Platt is very passionate about. He's written a lot about it. He's spoken a lot about it. And so we're excited to hear from the Lord through Him to worship together in in, in song. We're going to be praying. There's all these prayer moments and stuff. We've been running, putting it together, and I- I'm excited. It's this Thursday. This Thursday at seven o'clock out at Central. They're hosting. They're graciously hosting it for us. And and it's something that, man, I'm I'm excited to step into that room linked arm-in-arm, arm shoulder-to-shoulder arm arm, shoulder with these brothers and sisters, these extended family members we have in the local church, all for the sake of hearing about God's heart for the nations and aligning ourselves with that heartbeat. And the tragedy is, I think, a lot of times we maybe hear about these opportunities, maybe we hear about I me in the way it should be or the life I could live or the steps I could take, but we still feel held back. We still feel... Constrained by maybe a sin or a struggle, we feel constrained by a fear or a frustration. We feel constrained by a lack of opportunity, a lack of vision. And, and I'll tell you, that's why I'm also really excited that next week we're starting a, a new four-week series, continuing in the Book of Romans. We're, we're just we're skipping one chapter and we're going into Romans chapter five. We'll be studying Romans five through eight over four weeks. And we're looking at you know, a slightly different angle of how we are living free from all these issues, all these hangups. I mean, we've been working on this since May. And I'm excited for us to really dive deeper into some of the emotional and spiritual barriers we face in this specific context. I mean, we've been putting a lot of thought and care into I mean, what are, the, what are the major issues that hold us back? What, what keeps us from living in the freedom that we've been given in Christ? And so we'll be talking about how Jesus has freed us from fear, from failure, from the demands of this world and from death itself. We'll cover that. And so my encouragement for you is, man, when you show up next week, be ready to be honest. Just be ready to be honest with the Lord. Because we're going to have some elements involved that I I think are going to be really helpful and healthy, but could be hard for some of us. Uh, it could be a really helpful series also that, that maybe there's a friend of yours that you know would benefit from hearing the word of God and experiencing the love of God's people. And Maybe this is a time to bring them. We want to be intentional at the start of every series to just be overly welcoming, overly invitational, overly gracious to everyone who wants to hear from the Lord. So, man, that's, that's where we're headed. And I don't know exactly what your next step is. right? I just, I just gave you a lot of steps. I don't know exactly where you are or where you're headed, but I know that we have a God who has a plan, who has a purpose. And so let's just end this time by asking him to reveal to us what's next. God, we, we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to hear from your word. God, maybe just to marvel at your truth. God, some of us, maybe it's the first time that we're really accepting that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died, and rose for us. Man, if that's you, I, I would encourage you to talk with someone at our resource table after the service, or come and talk with me. For others of us, and we are in a place of asking the Lord, God, what's next? So if that's you, I, I would encourage you to take this time, before we stand in worship, to... Be honest with the Lord and confess. Say, God, this is maybe where I've been going through the motions, like we sang earlier. God, this is where I've been simply coming to you as a consumer, looking to meet my requirements and check my boxes. But instead, take this moment and, and confess. Say, God, I, I want to live a life that's modeled after Jesus Christ, one that gives and sacrifices and loves unconditionally, a life that's devoted to your higher purpose and your higher calling to share the good news of what Christ has done. So I mean, take this moment and ask the Lord to show you what's, what's next for you. Is it accepting the, the reality of what Jesus has done? Is it sharing the story of what Christ has accomplished? Is it sharing the story that that God just has written for you, your testimony, and and, and having a spiritual conversation with a friend or family member or roommate? Is it taking some steps to to open your hands up about your future? Saying, God, if you want to send me around the world, God, do that. God, if you want to shake up my career plan, God, you want to shake up my degree, God, do that. Because ultimately, I want to be walking in step with your will. I don't know where you're at, but God does. So take this moment, confess where you are and ask him in his power to move you forward where he would have you go.